Good day. Hello. McLaughlin at work. Paul McLaughlin here. You want to ever be in touch with me? You want to mouth off in an email? You want to tell us what you think about management leadership or and employment? You can. McLaughlin at Mac.com. M-C-L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N at Mac. M-A-C dot com. The uh, early handle for Mobile Me, the Apple product, for those of you who are Apple aficionados or users of the Mobile Me in the cloud that Apple provides. You can also do it at McLaughlin at me.com, but McLaughlin at Mac.com is an early affectation showing that I was there at the beginning. Nice to hold on to those, like those old license plates. Like they don't have them like that anymore. McLaughlin at work, all about management, leadership, and employment. And we've got two heavyweights to talk to you about today. One, Charlie Jacobs, written a book about management rewired, the continued look into the brain that we've had a series about here on McLaughlin at work. Martin Lindstrom, biology, and a couple of others have begun to look into the science of the brain. And uh, Charlie will continue that in our first interview. The second, a corollary perhaps, collateral benefit of knowing more about the brain is what allows us to, in Morton Hansen's term, title of his book, collaboration, how teams work, how to get teams to work together better. So one is understanding what the brain does and how we can apply that to business, and the other is to take how people really interact, particularly in this world, modern world, if you will, of uh, different kinds of communication and how people can, must, work together to reap big profits. Both of those on McLaughlin at Work coming up. Charles S. Jacobs on the cover of his book entitled Management Rewired, Why Feedback Doesn't Work and Other Surprising Lessons from the Latest Brain Science. I've found that that's usually what the publisher wants to put on the cover of the book, but I'm glad that we had the opportunity to get inside the book with... Uh, Charlie, welcome. Thank you for having me, Paul. Uh, I noticed in your introduction, um, there was a couple of comments that immediately caught my eye, and I, I want, I'd like to start with, some, with the way you started with your book. You say uh, in the introduction, it's a daunting task for a layperson to come to grips with the complex Latinate terms of neuroscience. What is your, what is your book about, and what, is the, what do people have to know before they're going to learn from it? Uh, as you said that sentence, I realized it's a daunting task to come to terms with that sentence. As uh, It sounded better when I was writing it. Um, <laughs> well, that's part of what we do here. You have, you're not writing anymore, Charlie. You're talking Oh, to I us. have to talk. I have to speak. Um, well, this really all started as a result of my work. I, first of all, I've been interested in the brain my entire life. I wanted to be a psychiatrist when I was growing up, kind of a weird thing for a kid want, wanting to do. Uh, a lot of my early education was focused on it. My graduate work was focused on it. I then went into business. And what I found increasingly in business was that there was this focus on behavior. And the focus didn't necessarily make sense. And I, all of my work started to target how people thought and that, as a result, gave rise to behavior as opposed to focusing on the behavior itself. My company was acquired, 
and I had three years of a non-compete agreement, and I decided I wanted to go back and learn everything I could possibly learn about how the mind Your worked. Your company was in the business of what? Management consulting. Okay. It was a company that I'd started 15 years before. Uh, it was the height of the internet boom. A lot of larger consulting companies, technology companies, wanted a strategy and organization companies a front end, and mine was just a, a perfect candidate. And it was um, bittersweet selling it. It's always nice to sell a company, but it, it, you sort of stand around saying, I'm, I'm too young to retire. What do I do? So I'd always wanted to write a book. I was always fascinated by the mind. It kept up on the research. And I went back and I really started to look at neuroscience and what neuroscience was teaching us. And what was so significant to me was, uh, in, in, um, contrary to other sciences, neuroscience gives us hard data pictures. We can actually see what's going on in the brain. So it's very persuasive for managers. Managers don't like theory, uh, theories or models. What they really want is hard data. Neuroscience gives us hard data about how the mind works, and that was my starting point, then taking that to what it means to manage. Did you ever submit to an MRI or anything like that to see what, uh, what your own brain looked like? Uh, no, I haven't, as a matter of fact. I recently read somebody who went through the process, and it was a little bit frightening. Uh, I, I actually would like to do that at some point, because I do think that you will learn something about yourself. But I'm, rather than the specific patterns, I'm much more interested in what the whole process tells us about the way the mind works. And I've actually distilled it into things that I think make sense, stay away from the Latin terms, but do teach us that the way that we're managing is really backwards. We are often doing things that create exactly the opposite of what we want to accomplish. I think there are two phases to your, uh, three phases maybe to your book, and, and, I, uh, and I decided to sort of miss the middle phase. But it seems to me you have to, you first have to understand that, the, that what you are talking about is as real as the perception of how we view ourselves is incorrect. I mean, you sort of have to understand, first of all, that this is the way the game is played. You're talking, you've got this wonderful thing between your ears and your nose and the back of your head that directs everything we do. And yet, from what your book and a lot of the relatively new, we talked uh, briefly about Martin Lindstrom and his book about biology. I noticed even as topical a program as 60 Minutes has had two of these on and talking about with, you know, sort of stunning. 60 minutes only wow is this is that really what they're doing what what is is it the ability to look inside the mind the mechanical ability to see what's happening is that's what's driven neuroscience in the last 10 years to be able to do now what it couldn't do before um to look inside the mind in real time Okay. I mean, for at least 150 years, we've been cutting open the brain. We've been associating different parts of the brain with different mental functions. We had a pretty good idea of sort of what resided where. What we missed when we finally was, were, were able to see the brain in action was that it isn't just one area that's responsible for something. The brain is all about relationships. It's networked. The second thing that we realized is that as information travels through the brain, we're beginning to understand that the brain works in a very different way than we thought it did. And, and right to your point, the most fundamental thing about the brain is that we don't know the physical world. All we know are our ideas about the physical world. We can tell that as we watch information travel through the brain. And what that means is the world we live in, and this gets a little bit philosophical, so pardon me for this, but right. it is scientific. The world we live in is not physical, it's mental. And mental worlds operate differently than physical worlds. They don't operate according to physical laws. And so this just breaks open the whole field of how you interact with people, how you think about business, how you organize. Is uh, your book seminal 
you know, that's a, a tough question for an author to answer without sounding somewhat egotistical. But in all of my research, I found nobody that took the data that was out there and went across disciplines. And by that, I mean, I not only deal with neuroscience, I deal with linguistics, evolutionary biology, any way that I can get at how the mind works. Take that body of data and in a very practical way apply it to what it means for management. That I didn't find. I did find other people that I thought did a brilliant job of taking what we now know about the mind and talking about things like education or morality um, or how we make buying decisions or, of course, behavioral finance, why economics doesn't play out the way we expect it to play out. So in that respect, I think it is seminal. Um, I'm going to leave for the, the end of our discussion um, the fact, I, I think you've got a much tougher road to hoe to change management to think this way because we've... Um, We've both grown up, uh, not quite of the same cohort, but we've grown up and seen particularly, and maybe uh, to address at some, at some point about the financial services industry, and maybe your book really says the same thing that we've found. It wasn't the numbers that drove us into the ground. It was something else. A recent book coming out about, about the 15th of, uh, of September, well, what really happened to Lehman, and who, what, what and I believe there's a book out which I haven't read about Bear Stearns, sort of the same idea. Surprise, it's not the numbers, stupid. It, it is not the economy, stupid. Or if it is the economy, it's the people who ran the economy. The economy wasn't a numbers-driven piece. But let, let's, let's get back in here to your, in, in putting this book together, um, you started, uh, I don't know where you started, but when you talked about neuroscience and then the application, how, how did, what was the bridge? What was the transition that allowed you then to want to apply and think that you can, the hubris, to think that you can actually convince a manager, which we will get to, to change because of what you know? Well, it, it, it's really backwards. Um, I was a practitioner. I spent uh, a good two and a half decades, I actually still do it, but I spent a good two and a half decades living on airplanes, visiting large companies, primarily large companies, and working with management. And you either figure out how to do it and add value, or you're a masochist. So I figured out things to do, but there was never that, that sort of core model, the way to bring it all together. And so when my company was acquired, my first consulting company was acquired, I made a point of going back and saying, I want to figure out what's the science behind what I'm doing. So I kind of backed into it and started to get the idea. Now, what I have found is you never go to a senior manager in an organization and say, let me tell you about neuroscience. I want to talk about how the amygdala operates. They, their eyes just kind of glaze over. But if you can show them very clearly how the science is going to improve their business and leave out those Latin terms, they're going to jump on it. They're absolutely going to go for it. But there are also people that are very resistant to this for some reason. And ultimately, the, the point of the book is that if you manage people the way they want to be managed, if you leverage their energy rather than forcing them or controlling them, you can get a much better result. For some reason, people resist that. And my suspicion is because they've grown up with a different model, and it's very hard to discount the way that they've managed throughout their life. For the generation, uh, you, you are not a business school product, which probably allows you to think the way you do. Um, Harvard's case method has come under some, some stress. It continues to do it, but they're Harvard and they're not going to change. But I was reflecting as I was looking through, the, through your book. Um, I hesitate to say read because that, that wouldn't do you justice. But the, the, the theory in the uh, mid-70s of management by objective 
is almost, or, or even the way GE looked at, and you have the example of, of GE, is in the reward mechanism, but sticking with management objective, what you're really talking about is a new, a new way to look at management. You're sort of looking within yourself to find a better way to manage. I, that, that's going to take an awful lot to sell, don't you think? Um, yes, it does take an awful lot to sell. And the way that you sell it is to you, you demonstrate it to people. You give them an experience. Okay, so tell us. You, you, you had done with, you, you, one of the points about your book is stories. Right. Tell us a story. Well, I, I think the best story that I can tell you is, is that I once went into an organization and I was, this is a high technology company, a big star, and I was hired to train their managers by the president of the company. And so I listened to the president of the company, I talked to his direct reports, and then I went and I was going to train their direct reports. And I walked into the room with all kinds of material and all kinds of tools to give them, and I said, well, this is what we're going to do over the course of the three days we have together. At which point they looked at me and they said, we don't need this. Our managers need this. What do you think you're going to do? And I realized very early on two things. Number one is you never tell people anything. The minute you start to tell people something, they're going to come up with reasons why it doesn't work. You're much better suited, as we learned from Socrates, that's in the book, 2,400 years ago. You ask questions. You help people realize it for themselves. The second thing that I learned is if we really want people to understand the sort of mental nature of the world that they're living in and how it's really much more about how we think, you're going to have to give them some kind of experience. So over that they the, can identify with. That they can identify with. That they can actually feel this. Yeah. So over the course of my career, whether it was dealing with a board of directors or senior managers or people on the shop floor, and I've worked at all levels in the organization, the thing that I always start with is some kind of exercise that shows them they're not thinking the way they are. Something that creates... Say that again. They're, they are not... They're not thinking... I'm sorry. They're not thinking the way they think they are. Some kind of exercise that puts dissonance into the system. So if they think they're being objective, they realize through this exercise they're really not what being objective. What is cognitive dissonance? Cognitive dissonance is when we hold two pieces of information in our head that are in conflict, that don't agree with one another. For instance, the example I use in the book is my self-image, I believe I'm a good person, a high performer, my boss comes along and he tells me I'm not. Now, when we experience cognitive dissonance, it's uncomfortable. We want our view of the world to be consistent. So we do whatever we can to reduce that dissonance. And the best way of reducing the dissonance is not to, dis for an individual, is not to discount my self-image I've spent an entire lifetime building up, but it's to discount the source of the feedback that may be dissonant with that self-image. So when I get feedback from my manager, I don't take it to heart and say I need to improve, it's going to be much easier for me instead to either rationalize away the feedback, blame it on something external, bad customers, bad market, whatever it may be, or even better, discount the manager. And when I discount the manager, all of the sudden it becomes in my best psychological interest to do exactly the opposite of what the manager wants me to do. So feedback is an example of this strange world we live in that's mental, actually produces the opposite effect that we'd like it to produce. And we've heard that before, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I was speaking with um, uh, Tom Rath of, of the Gallup organization. He had given a similar example of, of one that you, uh, that you use in your book. Um, uh, it was about every parent, and you and I are, are parents, as I've learned that you are. Um, and if your child does poorly in an exam, and, and or is in a course and you as a parent you go to speak to the the teachers um 
your reaction will be, I'm going to do something to help that child take care of that F or D, as opposed to what the strength finders and the, the whole Gallup organization is built around the thought that you reinforce the strengths that the person has, because that's where they're going to succeed anyway, because they're not all good at all things. At the same time, as improving that which is making that which is good better, you will make something which is poor better too, because you're not harping on it. it seems to me that you're sort of the same the same theory that you have, not theory because you, you've seen it, but how, for instance, does that, how do you show, how does neuro, neuroscience, getting back to the brain part, how does the neuroscience reinforce your um, hypothesis that that's true? Okay. Before I get there, let me just start with, with something that I think is, 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 is fundamental to this. When somebody walks up to you and they put their arm around you and they say, let me give you a little feedback. How do you feel? <laughs> As the arm grips my shoulder, that hand grips right. my shoulder, the harder the grip, the more I know I screwed up. I mean, what, you know, it, you don't all of a sudden go, hey, great, what a wonderful opportunity to learn and to grow because I know feedback's important and feedback is important. We'll talk about how, how you make it work. But no, you tend to tighten up. And when you tighten up, you tend to get defensive. Now, what we find in the brain happens is, is that we more often than not simply respond to stimuli that we've experienced before. We match it to a pattern that's held in memory. When we are getting what we expect, we have this sort of steady humdrum wave pattern in the brain. When we encounter something that we didn't expect, something novel, something different, that's the dissonance. All of a sudden, the, the brain goes into hyperdrive and different areas of the brain come into play. One of them that comes into play is this ability that we have to sort of see the big picture. Another one that comes into play is this emotional component. That's what you feel when somebody puts their arm around you and says, let me give you some feedback. The emotional component, the amygdala, then pumps a hormone called cortisol into the system. Cortisol is great. It prepares us for fight or flight, but it does two other things. It makes our cognitive processes slow down, number one. And number two, it makes us, how, how can I explain this? It makes our vision narrow. We don't see the big picture anymore. So when we respond negatively to this feedback that's coming at us, what effectively happens is we become stupider. And so we are in a defending mode rather than a mode of where we want to explore it. So dissonance of a certain kind can be very damaging to us. There is a kind of dissonance that is not damaging, actually helps us grow, and I assume you'll ask about that at some point. <laughs> That's right. Um, it, it, again, tying back to some other of these uh, of things that I've learned from speaking to people like yourself, um, and that was a book of the, the, the power of, of nice, uh, Robin Koval, and, and she was telling me that, something from the arts, that in order for improv to work, the next statement after the previous has to be positive. <laughs> that the only way that you can build and build a story is off a positive statement. And so if somebody's looking for a, obviously improv non-rehearsed, if, if you bang somebody with somebody neg something negative, there's no place they can go. If you give them something positive, to your point, they, they'll go in a whole lot of directions. You don't know where they're going to go, but they're all, they're all moving forward as opposed to that defensive mechanism, which I think what's important about your book is that you've, you've got the support for this as the synapse and amygdala and all the, those Latinate terms that, that people can't remember. But there's, is this absolute truth? I mean, that, that's part of what I, what I see here is, is then we have the ability 
to reject this. I mean, does the mind play, can it play tricks on itself? Can oh, it shut absolutely. down the shutdown? Absolutely. Let, let, let me back up to a moment to, to absolute truth. Um, people that are familiar with the social sciences recognize that there is no absolute truth. Objective truth, I'm sorry. Right. Um, yeah, so, right. so what you can do, the best you can do, is you come up with as much data as you possibly can. You make the best case that you possibly can. Right. So in my book, I You use, write a book, and then you write a book. And then you write a book about <laughs> okay, it. You put um, it if, if you're a masochist, yeah. you then write a book about it. <laughs> but you may be a masochist anyway, but that must be a different... Um, chemical that's a different synapse altogether that makes you a masochist uh yes it is and and th there's probably a book in that as well but <laughs> but so so what i've done in the book is to start with the neuroscience because it is the hard data it is the physical data and then to go to other disciplines where we can find some support for that for instance social psychology or evolutionary psychology where there have been studies that show us the way things actually play out I've also gone to the classical management studies where we can see what happens, the connection between specific management practices and the behavior or the results that occurs as, as it happens. So as much as possible, yes, there's data behind this. Um, I'm not about, given when I know uh, the way the brain operates, I'm not about to say this is hard, cold truth and nothing's ever going to change. But given our state of understanding, this is the best we're going to do right now. Will we learn more? We've gotten a mother load, haven't we, in, in recent, recent years? I think we've learned the big things. And, and for me, there are really three key things that we take away from, from the science. The first is that the world we live in is mental, as we've talked. The second one is that this idea that we can think objectively without emotional input is just a myth. And in fact, if we did think without emotional input, our thinking wouldn't be as good. It would tend to be more short-term because it's the emotion that gives us access to our past memories and allows us then to forecast the future and nobody would get married and <laughs> and the third one is the power of ideas because of the way they operate on the brain they literally change chemically what's going on in the brain so an idea at a high level can change the way the brain operates the way we think the way we make decisions and the way we behave but given that there are studies coming out every day that I find simply amazing there's somebody now who believes that they've located the area of the brain responsible for spirituality uh, there's somebody well, wh why does that make you smile um, I mean, I, that's a curious reaction having spent a couple of hours with you uh, why does why does spirituality not think that there's a spot in the brain for it there's uh, nothing in the brain that says, is that where your soul is? Have, you, have they found one soul? Uh, well, you know, Descartes believed it was the pineal gland, right? There was, okay. there was the, the, uh, the place. Um, because it gets a little bit too specific for me. It's, it's a little bit like, uh, there was an article in the paper, I think yesterday, that was talking about a researcher that has run a number of, of uh, effective leaders through MRIs, through brain scans, has come up with a pattern, and now is teaching other people using neurofeedback to produce the same brave wave, wave patterns. There's, there's a specificity in that that I'm uncomfortable with. I think we can learn a lot about how the brain operates, but I don't think we want to be training people to mimic the same brainwave patterns because the brain is just enormously complex. So I think that there isn't one area that's responsible for feelings of spirituality. I think there are actually a number of different networks that are responsible for that sense we have that there's more to life, that there's more to our existence than simply that. So it's, it's not whether or not we, spirituality is very real. It's a question of whether you can actually locate it in the brain. Right. When, as you were speaking earlier, uh, I was thinking about the importance of knowing one's ancestry as being comfortable with oneself, sort of that longitudinal that we do with it. something existed before us that makes us what we are. 
which is different from looking at a balance sheet of, of, of us at any one particular time. Did, did your research find anything um, associated with that? That we go back and, and we are a, a, a sum total of, of the people who came before us? Well, I think it plays out in two ways. Uh, it's not just the people that came before us. It's the animals, the chimpanzees, right. the apes, okay. uh, the common ancestors. Yeah, you have some comments in your book about that. Right. Um, so we very much have evolved from that. And uh, I, I particularly love this picture that Jane Goodall has in one of her books where she shows this gorilla in a display and he's got his arms up in the air and he's kind of screaming. And every time I look at this, I think of bosses that I've worked for that did very much the same thing. And there's certainly, you know, argument that can be made that a lot of our behavior just comes directly from them. I think within the, the sort of human range, we really are very much products of our past. And it's going to happen to us as a result of evolution. It's also going to happen to us as a result of the culture that we've created. Um, the culture that we create within our society, within our communities, within our family. There is a reason why your children are the way they are that has to do with the way that you brought them up. And there's a reason why my children are the way they are because of how I brought them up. So I think if we really want to understand what's going on in the present, we ought to have a pretty good sense of what's going on in the past. And without that access to that emotional part of the brain, we lose that. And that's really what's wrong with objectives. It's not that we shouldn't have measures in place. It's that it, when we focus solely on the objectives, our vision narrows. It becomes focused only on accomplishing those objectives, and we don't think about everything else that's going around the accomplishment of the objectives. We're not, we, we don't have forever, and I have a tendency to think that we could talk for a long time. Um, a couple of points I'd like to inquire about. One is around, uh, one is around your, the comment uh, about uh, using counterintuitive to drive change. And you quote uh, Paul Watzlawick. Watzlawick? Watzlawick, yeah. Uh, explained why counterintuitive works so well by drawing a distinction between, and I quote, two different types of change, one that occurs within a given system, which itself remains unchanged, and one whose occurrence changes the system itself. Um, allow yourself up on that pedestal looking back over the time that you wrote the book and how times have changed now from when it was in formation. What kind of change have we gone through? That to me is, is, uh, is a question that, that, that holds a lot of interest and I ponder it a lot. Um, a couple of months ago we were hearing a lot about the fact that Americans are fundamentally changing. They're becoming less materialistic, they're focused more on spiritual values, they're focused more on community. This is a result of the downturn in the economy. Watzlowitz's distinction between first order change and second order change has a lot to do with that dissonance that we were talking about earlier and the idea of feedback. When you give me negative feedback, my first order change is going to be to bolster myself up to counter that feedback. But if you give me a kind of dissonant experience that really stops my thinking, stops me automatically, then that becomes a second order change where I kind of rise to a different level and I see things in a different way. And we often talk about very painful experiences as learning experiences because that's what they do to us. So when we fail miserably, we sort of stop ourselves and say, what did I do? I have to do something differently. And there is this theory of twice-born leaders, people like Winston Churchill or John F. Kennedy or uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who were all basically zeros until they went through some really hard times in their lives and then developed this ability to be very different and to help people manage change as well. So I think there's the, the right kind of dissonance fundamentally changes us. I think the jury's out right now. I'm a little bit distressed that we're already moving on, that we're already seeing big bonuses paid again yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in banking. Hey, I agree with you. I'm interested. <laughs> Topically, 
Goldman Sachs recently reported extraordinary profits based on exactly the same theories that got us all into this into the crapper together. Almost well, taking risk. They were smarter than it, but if they had failed in that risk analysis, uh, we could have doubled down <laughs> on, on our problems. I, I agree with you. It's, it's a strange phenomenon that maybe we, we are really past, that we're really past this. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned. It's the same way that, it's the same kind of language that was used after 9-11. It's a, it's a fundamentally different world. We're all going to be different as a result of this. Mm. I don't know how much we are different. I, I know that I now can't carry big bottles of shampoo through uh, the airport anymore the way that I used to. Uh, there's a lot more visible security. But has our basic value set changed? Ha have we become very different people? The same thing with what's going on right now. I'd like to believe that we will be different people, that there will be less conspicuous consumption, that the values that we cherish as a society, uh, we at least give lip service to, will really be cherished as a society. Um, but I think the jury's out. I just don't know. Yeah, I agree. I would, I would uh, offer, not in the point of uh, discussing with you and listening to you, but offer an, it perhaps in counterpoint, that um, it may not have changed your and my generation, but I think it will have had a great impact on the next one coming up, however one defines that next generation, that they will see the impact that it's had on us, even if we don't change the, 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 uh, the movie's gone from black and white to color and it'll be tough to get it back to black and white, maybe. And of course, we're both old enough to have had parents that lived through the Depression. Right. And that certainly shaped our generation. Mm -hmm. uh, I, when I was going to college, it was not about making money. It was, you sort of distrusted that. It was much more about having a peaceful world and living in harmony and all that. Um, but it didn't, it didn't last, I guess. And I'm a little bit distressed by that because I think that there is a set of values that are healthier. Um, I think it would be nicer, I, I'm a, certainly an idealist, I think it would be nicer if our organizations were kinder to people, if we shared the wealth more. Um, I think it would just make a, a healthier society. Hopefully, the younger generation coming up will learn that from what we're going through right now. Yeah. I, I noticed you had a, a bit about sports in there. I don't want to belabor that point. But um, uh, I think there is, for that generation coming up, if we took all the shackles off medicine, and just let it go. It's my one of my pet theories is the leashed dog theory, and that is if you keep a leash on a dog, the dog is going to be ferocious. It knows it can't get loose and uh, never get to Fido and actually mix it up. Take that leash off, you got a whole new dog. Maybe it's different. Last point, and this is the book is um, I guess this is positioned as a, a business book. Didn't have to be, but uh, it's management rewired. It's not um, it's not. Manny being Manny being rewired, <laughs> to be topical. Is this going to work in business? Will a better work-life balance result? Is that one, is that a potential consequence of, of, of drinking this, uh, drinking this Kool-Aid? Uh, I, I would certainly hope so. And, and I would go at it in, in two different ways. Um, the first way is, you're right, the word management is, is on the front of the book, and as you uh, sort of mentioned in that offhand way earlier on, it is the publisher who decides what it's, what it's entitled. And these really are principles, um, they're findings that apply to human beings in whatever uh, uh, arena they find themselves in. But they're going to apply across everything. It's all about how people relate to each other. It's all about how we think about the world that we live in. So it's going to have application in any kind of environment. 
one of the things that I would hope is that we would realize from understanding how the brain works that working 80 hours a week is not only not healthy, it's not productive. That this constant focus on the numbers is not only not productive, it's not healthy. It doesn't make us good people. So I know as a fact that if I, I'm going to give something away here, if I get 45 minutes to just kind of close my eyes and nap at some point during the day, lunchtime or whatever, rather than eating a big lunch, I'm incredibly productive in the afternoon. There aren't many organizations that would let you do that. But, you know, that really would make us more productive. And there are actually neuroscientists that are studying that and are recommending that we ought to have siestas like they do in uh, what, what we call civilized countries. <laughs> like the ones who are doing it a little bit differently. Yeah. So, um, but I also think that the point that comes through loud and clear is if people do what they feel good about, if they do it in an environment that is congenial for them, and if they're really engaged in the work, it becomes so enormously rewarding the financial rewards become much less important. And I think about the conversation you and I started with, we're both lucky enough to have spent a good portion of our lives doing what we wanted to do. And it's never been work for me in that way. And if there's one thing that I really wanted to accomplish with this book, and you notice that it was dedicated to my daughters, was I wanted them to see me doing something that was hard and was challenging, but really made me feel good. And the best day of my life was the day we walked into a bookstore, the day the book was published, and there it was on the table. And it wasn't because, look at what daddy accomplished. It was because my daughters had the chance to see that there was a payoff to hard work and doing something that you believe in. Well put. A very fitting ending. Uh, Charlie, thank you very much. Uh, the book is Management Rewired, Why Feedback Doesn't Work and Other Surprising Lessons from the Latest Brain Science Charles S. Jacobs is the author. I assume that that's not your brain on the cover, but it could be. Uh, but it's an it's a interesting <laughs> book. We encourage people to look at it. It may, may or may not be seminal, but even if you buy the theory or you dismiss the theory, either way, you'll come out better for having read the book. Thank you much, Paul. Good day. And now for a not-so-subtle shift of gears, we're going to move to a subject matter that the brain sometimes doesn't recognize it for what it is, and that's collaboration. Morton Hansen going to be with us. His book, all about collaboration, how it can lead to big rewards, but first you've got to understand how the mind works. We saw Charlie Jacobs' neuroscientific review of how the mind works and how it affects our businesses and how we have to change to accommodate the real world. And what is the real world? Perhaps what we think, perhaps what we see, perhaps what a blend of each, but clearly there is a reaction, as Charlie pointed out. There's a reaction to what the other world, other people think and do. We're not in an island, and nothing explains that better than the discussion about collaboration with Morton Hansen. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, the work wonk here this afternoon looking forward to the conversation with Morton Hansen. Morton is the author of a brilliantly read cover entitled Collaboration, put out by Harvard Business Press, a certain imprimatur associated with that. The subtext, how leaders avoid the traps, create unity, and reap an ROI, a BR, a big result. Morton, welcome. Thank you. What gave rise to this book? Why did we need a book on collaboration? I think collaboration is everywhere at work in business and in government and nonprofit. 
we collaborate across companies, we collaborate within companies, we collaborate across the world. But the problem is that a lot of that collaboration is not good collaboration, it's bad collaboration. So we are undermining performance rather than improving it. And what this book is about is really how do you collaborate well and get the results from collaboration as opposed to just doing it for its own sake. You, I know, uh, both are a professor. Uh, you have also been in business. You've been a consultant, I take it. Yes, that's right. Um, is one of the reasons for collaboration is because you noticed a marked lack of it through your early industrial career? Not really, because the uh, problem is not the lack of collaboration, but it's more that there's the wrong kind. So what I'm arguing, I found in my research on this, is that sometimes people collaborate on the wrong things and they collaborate more than they ought to be doing. And they do it poorly. So the challenge for leaders is not to promote more collaboration in the organization. It is to promote the right kind. And that is a big difference. How do you approach it? Well, I started out this in the mid-1990s, so a long time ago. And I started uh, doing my PhD uh, thesis, my work at uh, Hewlett Packard. And to begin with, we weren't looking at collaboration. We were writing a case on innovation at Hewlett Packard. But then when I looked at that practice, something odd struck me, and that was some of these teams, they reach out to other parts of Hewlett Packard, and they were able to find software, hardware, and expertise that they can bring back to their project and do a phenomenal job. But other times, there were teams doing the same thing, and it ended up in a terrible way. It was waste of time. They couldn't find what they were looking for. And if they did, they might start fighti fighting with the other division. They undermined performance. So for me, I was looking at this and, and thinking, uh, this is odd. Why can they not collaborate well inside the walls of a company? After all, we are in the same company. So I started doing my work on this, and we examined more than 100 teams. And what we found was that some did it well and some did it badly. And that, that was the first part. I had expected to find that the more is better, but that's not what we found. More, more collaboration, right. the better. But that is not what we found. And these teams that you looked up, w looked at, were often of made up of the same groups of people. They were very different groups of people. They were teams in more than twenty-five different divisions of Hewlett Packard, and uh, working on different technologies all over. But once we took that into account, that they were different people and different teams, the finding still was the same. So quite interesting. And from then onwards, I have for the last fifteen years done research in different settings in IT consulting businesses, in consumer good companies, in high-tech companies. And uh, the finding is the same. It's a set of practices around doing it well as opposed to doing more of it. You're a professor at two different institutions. Which are? At uh, UC Berkeley out in California, and also at INSEAD, which is the leading business school in Europe, and it's based in France. So I go travel between two continents. And uh, do you have um, seasonal courses that you teach one at one side and one on the other? Yes, I do teach a course at uh, UC Berkeley and includes collaboration in the course. And then I mostly do executive education teaching in, in Europe, working with uh, senior management teams in large companies. Is there a reason you don't teach collaboration in Fontainebleau? I do that too. 
Uh, I think it's m now it's one of my standard uh, seminars is a half day or a day on, on collaboration in a particular company that they will come to campus and their executives and we will um, debate collaboration and how well or how poorly is done in that particular company. And so I do that as well. Um, your higher education was in this country? Yes, I got my uh, doctorate in business from Stanford University. Okay. And your PhD uh, subject matter? In uh, business administration. You said you were doing work on innovation at Hewlett-Packard. Was right, that so the subject matter of your PhD? Uh, no, I, I, so I, we started out um, doing a PhD in what is called organization behavior and management. Mm -hmm. And I started out looking at network analysis, social networks at work, not the sort of online version. So you're ahead of your time. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit, but it's sort of the people networks, you know, how people relate to each other and how they build professional relationships. Right. And we got into how do you do that um, for innovation? And that's how this all got started. But my PhD became on collaboration because that is what I decided to focus on as, as a subject matter. And what did you actually entitle it? Knowledge integration in organizations. You were there at the beginning of social networking. How did you fold that into collaboration? The web did not have nearly the impact or even the presence that it has today. Yeah, when I started doing this, it wasn't there. Uh, people still talked to each other, though. There were still communication patterns in companies. Uh, so what we did is... Um, Networks are a very, very important part of collaboration, obviously. How you collaborate in companies has a lot to do with the networks that you build. And do you build effective networks or ineffective networks? So that is really part of it, and I have included that in my concepts here in the book. Uh, do you find that some companies have, in fact, um, created collaborative events that would not have happened the same way without the web? I think that um, the web and IT tools, the web 2.0 tools, can be a very important part and they can uh, accelerate collaboration in companies. I mean, ta let's take a company like Cisco. Uh, Cisco uses its own gear, its own software tools and telepresence to um, collaborate more effectively. And so, so they can do more with the same amount of resources and that's very effective. But I make a very important point in the book, and that is collaboration have a number of barriers. And some of them can be solved by IT tools, but others cannot. They're more motivational barriers. People don't want to collaborate. They might compete against each other, even within the same company. And when that happens, you need to change incentive systems. You need to change the way people get promoted. And you need to do that before you put on IT tools because IT tools alone and the web cannot change people's deep-seated motivations to collaborate. So, so that is a, it's, it's not a limitation of IT tools. It's just that one has to be very careful about what problems they solve and what they do not solve. There is a clear difference between the next generation and and the leaders that are senior positions today, at least maybe not so much in the high-tech industry because they, they live it every day, but outside for sure. I mean, the new generation is, I mean, my students, I look at my students now, I mean, they are, the way they collaborate uh, and the way they share knowledge on the web is pretty dramatic. And when they graduate, and some of them already have, of course, they're just going to get into the workforce and that's what they expect to find.
And if they don't find the same amount of activity inside the company, they're going to start scratching their heads. It'll be a rude awakening in some companies. Absolutely. But we also, let's, let's, if we go back to this theme that collaboration is something you do in companies to get results, not because it's fun, then we also have to ask the question, well, all that uh, Web 2.0 activities inside a company, are we doing it because it's fun or are we doing it because it leads to result? So we need to be very careful about not overdoing it. I mean, we don't want to have the new generation sitting on their computer desk in companies and spending the entire day doing online networking that doesn't have a very strong focus on results. Probably um, <coughs> Twittering would fall into the uh, category of uh, rather an empty food. Yeah, I mean, Twittering can be very, uh, I can imagine that that could be effective inside, but only if people are uh, focusing on that this is good for business. Right. When, when they work, that is. That's right. I'm speaking with uh, Morton Hansen. Uh, the book is Collaboration, has forward uh, from Jim Collins, author of Good to Great. Always nice to have some of the, the supporting networks. Paul McLaughlin here, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. Supported as we are in uh, many of um, uh, our episodes by Classroom 24-7. and it helps enhance web learning and also gives... Uh, certification training, which is uh, so required in certain of the professions. So you might want to click on to uh, Web 24, to Classroom 24-7 and learn more about them. Always been a good sponsor, and they're, um, they have a good product. Take advantage of it. We talk here on McLaughlin Work about management, leadership, and employment. And I, I, perhaps uh, Morton Hansen has added that key ingredient to all of those, and that is getting results. How, is, how does collaboration differ from uh, communication? Collaboration is uh, more than communication. Collaboration is working across boundaries to achieve goals. And it's not just information sharing. If all you do is just share information, uh, then that's not necessarily collaboration. Collaboration is about working on a product, for example, and developing a new product. It is about working together to sell new products to customers. It is about transferring best practice so that you can reduce costs on the other side. Those things have, have results. And uh, communication is one part of that, but collaboration is, is more than that. And I think uh, if, if I read it, noticed it in the book, you said that collaboration is a, an, a measurable event. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, collaboration is something you do and then at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, well, did we get the results we wanted? And was it worth the effort? And those are measurable things. You know, did we develop that product and did that product sell a lot? Uh, did we sell new stuff to customers? Those are measurable things as a result of what you've been doing. So, and you have to hold yourself accountable to that and say, well, did we, did we do it? Did we produce the results? And the problem with collaboration is that if you don't have that focus on results, what happens? is that you collaborate for the sake of collaboration. It becomes the end in and of itself. And that is obviously wrong, at least in the workplace. Is it more difficult to establish that environment in a highly creative arena where you don't necessarily where you know where you're going, you can't define the end point? How do you enforce collaboration when you're not sure what the result's gonna be? Yeah, you know, every collaboration project that is of that creative nature doesn't have to end up with a product. But the way I think you do it is that you look at 
the uh, portfolio of those projects. You look at the set, the combined set. So let's say there are 20 of those going on. And you might say, well, you know, if one, one hits it big and five are okay, and then 10 are failures or some kind of combination, you might be okay. But if you look at that, then you look and all 20 are not going anywhere. You start asking yourself, well, you know, a lot of people are collaborating around here, but we're not getting any results. So if you lift it up from an individual project, you can start asking yourself the question. So for example, at Google, they do all these new product development ideas. Well, if none of them are going to be any good, they need to kind of reassess what they're doing. And they have, in fact, started to shut down some of these new ones. And then they have others that are great. I mean, Google Earth is a uh, Google Maps, you know, great application. Talk to us a little bit about some of the fun stuff of collaboration. How does it play, collaboration abroad? So there are a few differences. I mean, uh, maybe the American culture is a little more individualistic than some European cultures. And it's perhaps a little more difficult to cultivate collaboration if you have a highly individualistic uh, workplace setting. And in some European companies, uh, they are m much more of a, a collective culture. But the interesting thing is that that can cut both ways because it can be company cultures in Europe where they over-collaborate, that everything is collaboration and nothing is individual results. Now that's not what we want either because that is the wrong kind of collaboration as we talked about earlier. And in, in the US there might be, I talk about in my book this notion of a lone star. A lone star is somebody who's really good in delivering their own individual results but they're not so good at teamwork and collaborating and helping others. And that, you need something different from that. You need to change those lone stars into much more of a collaborative person. Not without losing the individual orientation, that is so important. You've got to have individual results and you need to have the collaborative results. So in terms of uh, cultures uh -huh. across nations, there is one thing, though. I think there is. I'm going to interrupt you and just ask: Do you do you, ha do you have in the book something that has a, a a a graph that shows collaboration, the Germans, the French, the Americans, the Chinese, the Indians? So the question of of the role of collaboration in different cultures. Yes. That um, is not focused of this book. I think it is a great area of, of research that has not yet been done. So I think that is something we want to do going forward. This uh, work is really about the, the main issues around collaboration. What are the biggest barriers that you've found to collaboration? You know, the insight there is really that different organizations have different barriers. And I think you pointed that out. Your results may vary depending on uh, what you, you have to know what you're doing. It, it's not a cookie cutter approach. Absolutely, one size does not fit all. And it's dangerous, it's really dangerous to go in and say, I think I know what's wrong with this situation here and uh, because it might vary. So the first thing you have to do is to diagnose what are the barriers. In the book I talk about then the not invented here barrier. People don't want any input from somebody else. Then there's the hoarding barrier. They don't want to share. They don't want to help. Then there's the search barriers that we're all so familiar with. And then there is the transfer barrier. They cannot work together well. So all those four barriers you then have to look at which one is at play in my company. Once you've figured out the combination of which one is really your Achilles heel, then you can tailor the solution. 
So give an example. I spoke to a CIO in one company. This CIO, who happened to be an American company, he says, we put in place a knowledge management system because we wanted to help people search better. That's what that does. And I ask, so how is it going? Well, it's not going so well. We're not getting any traction. People don't like the system. And I said, did this you do- This was a technology company? No, this was a financial services company. Okay, financial services, yeah. good. So I said, what, what do you think are the barriers to collaboration in a company if you take step away from IT and take a broad look? And I then explained the four barriers. And the, and the person said, you know, we, we did discuss this in our team and the massive problem we have is hoarding. People don't want to share or work together. So I asked the question, well, do you think that the IT knowledge management system can solve the m hoarding problem? I said, no, of course not. People don't want to work. An IT tool is not going to make them work. In, in fact, it might give them access to more information that then they would hoard more rather than... Right, exactly. They found it. Yes. So the system was a, a disaster, and they understood that belatedly. So they went back and started working on incentive systems to get people to hoard, I mean, to stop hoarding. So they had the wrong solution because they didn't understand the problem. So that's why I think first figure out the barriers in your organization. It doesn't have to be the entire company you're working for. It can be your workplace. Why is your work team not working so well with another work team? And you go from there. It ties, it ties in neatly with uh, uh, a book by Chester Elton, which we've uh, uh, talked about on here at McLaughlin at work, and it's called The Carrot Principle. And it was uh, a, a, a book in now in its second edition, which talks about the, um, the advantages of the appropriate use of rewards mm -hmm. in order to achieve uh, an end and how much of recognition and a series of rewarding events can help bring people together. Do you address that here in, in collaboration about how you can bring the recalcitrant to bear? Yeah, I think the reward system that you put in place is critical for collaboration. And I talk about it and I think one of the principles is <coughs> It's the carrot principle that you have to say, in our organization, we want individual performance and collaborative performance. And the reward goes to those who can do both. And we are fully prepared to not reward <coughs> as much or as well those who can't do both. That kind of setting that principle, measuring people on both collaboration and individual performance, and following through on it, sticking to the principle, can really make a, send a powerful signal that this matters in our organization. Because look, if all you do is talk about it, collaboration is great, and we want collaboration, but people don't do it and they get rewarded, then you know, people are gonna stop doing it, because it's hard work. They'll, they'll, they'll see you right through it. Yeah, absolutely. A variation on the theme of collaboration. Tell me what you think of um, the, particularly after what happened last year, maybe we're coming out of it a bit now, uh, maybe a two-part question. Uh, one is, uh, do you expect that the new generation that entered the, the is, is coming um, will have less respect for the corporate model, will carry more skills with them, and therefore what impact does that have on collaboration? Um, and secondly, what do you think will happen as a result of the uh, recession, depression, um, disappearance of certain companies on this whole notion of collaboration? 
So I think on the first question there, the, the new generation, I think they're going to have less respect for the old hierarchy, for the old command and control organization, where you take orders from the top, and if you want to work with somebody else, you have to go to your boss to seek permission, as opposed to just reaching out in a formal way. They're not going to like that. And I think it's going to be a rude awakening for those who still operate in that model. The, the new generation is going to come in, and they're going to question. They're going to challenge. And you know what? They're also going to start going around it. They're going to be Twittering, and they're going to be blogging, and they're going to be using the Facebook, and they're going to be meeting up. So you will have that coming from the bottom. And companies better get around it and, and to work with that as opposed to against it. Mm -hmm. So there was uh, the second question. Well, the, the, the impact of the economic meltdown. So, so I hope it's going to be a fundamental transformation that some people call it the new normal, that at the end of the recession, work is going to look different mm -hmm. than it did before. And I think one of the things is uh, we need to work smarter. We need to have more efficiency in the system. And it's not about just cutting costs. Now, companies have been cutting costs left and right these days. But that only takes you so far. You really need to work smarter. And that means collaboration is a way of doing that because you are fundamentally doing more, getting more output with the resources that you already have. That is collaboration. It is to combine the stuff that you have in new ways. And that is uh, higher productivity, higher efficiency, and you're working smarter. And I think the winners, uh, companies and individuals. The winners are going to be those that work smarter than we did before. So if you want to be part of that winner uh, group, I think you have to change the way that you work fundamentally. And you have people, you have a uh, embedded in the book and embedded in your web website, the ability for people to, to test what? Their collaborative skills, their um, their acuity, their desire to be collaborative. Uh, how, how does that work? You were explaining that to me. So, so part of this research, we have developed um, a little bit of a collaborative scorecard. Because mm -hmm. the first question you will ask is, is where do we stand with respect to these? How collaborative am I? Yes. <laughs> and how well are we doing? And what are our barriers? So what we have done is... Is this personal or, or corporate? So it's both, right? So what we've done is that we have um, said, we created some assessment tools. For example, on the barriers. And it's very brief and of course it's subjective, but you can take the assessment and score your own department or your own company, whatever you want to pick. And if you do it on the website that we have, you can actually then also get the uh, benchmark automatically produced for you. So where do you stand versus a sample of firms? And what that does is that it, it helps you pinpoint where your problems are. So we do that for the barriers. We do that for the... Uh, solutions that you want to put in place. And then we have this third tool, which is your collaborative leadership style. So if you want to, you as a leader, or as a manager, or as an employee, if you want to how collaborative you are in your style, then you can go and kind of do this assessment. But I will challenge you that it's better that somebody who knows you really well, like say your partner, does it on you. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise you might be too <laughs> nice to yourself. B and if or you do or that, even, even best to do it on yourself, and then somebody asks somebody else to do right. it on you. Then you get sort of two different your own perception of yourself and their perception of you. Right, and that's an interesting part of it. And then you can see where you are, 
and, and see what you need to change to become more collaborative in, in, in a good way, that is, in an effective way. In an effective way, as you point out, you being Morton Hansen, the book Collaboration, How Leaders Avoid the Traps, Create Unity, and Reap Big Results. And that is the good part of collaboration if you reap good results. That it is, yes. Collaborative for result. Collaborate for results. That's what it is about. And uh, your website where people can go to either learn more about uh, collaboration or to take the quiz? It is www.thecollaborationbook.com. That's T-H-E, Collaboration Book. Yes, it is. Thecollaborationbook.com. All the answers are there waiting for you to put in your own input, and back will come a gauge of how well you do. That is right. You can take the tool, take the assessment, and you will find out where you stand. It's a good starting point. If you you get a collaboration certificate? (laughs) That is a good question. Not yet. You first have to come back and show the results. (laughs) Show Show us the money, and then we will do a case study on you. Again, collaboration the book. Paul McLaughlin with Morton Hansen. And you too can avoid the traps, create unity, and reap big results. Another part of management and leadership and employment, all blended in something called collaboration. Important subject matter, important uh, book. Uh, Morton, good luck with it. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. There you go. Morton Hansen, collaboration. Charlie Jacobs, Management Rewired, constantly pushing back the frontiers here on McLaughlin at Work, the frontiers of business here in the summer of 2009. And uh, if we think we're out of the woods and entering the plains, the whole concept of the new frontier in business that we all face is a daunting vision. Let's talk about uh, pioneers looking into the future. We may think that some of the rough stuff is behind us. We've crossed the great divide and looking into a better fall. One can only hope. But we'll be here with you. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, all about management, leadership, and employment in the workplace. Thanks for listening. Join me again next week.